Welcome to a podcast of a sermon delivered at the Unitarian Society of Ridgewood in New Jersey. Our congregation is a place where you will find inspiration in the richness of diverse beliefs and the power of community. Detailed information about the Unitarian Society of Ridgewood is available on our website, uuridgewood.org. Now, if you'll please join me in the words for lighting the chalice, they're printed in your order of service and projected. We light the Now I'll ask you to take a deep breath and to remember that there is nowhere else you have to be right now. Nothing you need to do in this moment other than be here. Just be here with us in company, in silence, all of you side by side with your companions each of us, whole and complex and beautiful and wild. Take a deep breath in the stillness. Let yourself be and listen. So we have not only a new song of gathering, but because it is the first of the month, we have entered into a new theme. And our theme this month continues our year-long exploration of elements of a narrative, and we turn to exposition. Exposition is that time in a story when background is given, necessary, detailed background that brings everyone up to speed, that helps explain why characters are behaving the way they do, why this one is friends with that one but not the other, why this one gets mad about the back door being left open, whatever it is. Exposition helps to explain things that otherwise wouldn't have context or meaningful depth. Did anyone ever have a writing teacher who said, show, don't tell? Is that something you ever were talking? Okay, yeah, some people. (laughs) And it's great to show, not tell, but sometimes we need to tell. Sometimes we need to explain the story behind the action, the story behind the emotion. Sometimes we need a recounting of the history before we can understand what's happening in the present. Sometimes there just isn't a way to show. Anyone who's ever made a new friend or entered into a new relationship, you know this. There's a lot of explanation of your life that goes into catching up someone else who's just entering it because they haven't been there, haven't experienced it. They need the exposition. Our lives and everything that brings us to a particular moment is background story and complex, and to understand each other as whole, we need to share those and hear those. Exposition helps us to make sense of our own and others' reactions, behaviors, and decisions. This weekend, the Environmental Justice Committee and the Racial Justice Committee of the Unitarian Society of Ridgewood together offered a social justice weekend that focused on the disproportionate effect 
that pollution, climate change, and environmental degradation are having on people of color. We live in a pretty privileged part of the world, primarily among people with economic and racial and educational privilege. And the reality is that many of us need to be told. We need explanation. We need background and exposition to help us understand what our neighbors in the next town and what others around the world are confronting daily. We have gone relatively, and I say that carefully, relatively unscathed in the scheme of things when it comes to the impact of industrial dumping or climate change. We're insulated from it in many ways. This weekend, the last two nights, we're about educating our community here at USR, but also the wider community, about the impacts of our culture that we don't have to face regularly, but that are destroying ways of life around the world. So this morning, I want to welcome you to a morning of hard truths and difficult exposition. They are truths that must be told because they aren't known or experienced by all. But this is a place that can hold the sorrow and the pain and all of the varied emotions that we come to feel as we explore the history and the reality of our current moment. It's good to be with you even in difficult things. With the hard truths of climate change in mind, I invite you into the time of our service that we use for reflection. We begin each morning by centering ourselves in breath and silence, but this time is different than that. This extended time for meditation and prayer gives us an opportunity to lift up the cares of the wider world, the cares of our community, gives us a time to focus ourselves on the things that matter most in our own lives. This morning, as always, I invite you to use this time as best suits you while maintaining the silence and the focus that allows us all to go deep. I will lead you in a guided meditation, and then we'll move into our silence together. So please go ahead and find as comfortable a position to be in in your seat as possible. Relax your body, try to quiet your mind. You can help still yourself by breathing in carefully. Breathe in through your nose slowly and then release your breath even more slowly through your mouth. Breathe in through your nose and out through your mouth. Slowly and deeply. As you keep breathing, imagine that you have the most comfortable, the softest and coziest cloud-like blanket. This blanket keeps you warm holds you, makes you feel safe. Feel yourself wrapped in it, loosely or snugly, according to your preference. Its color is just the perfect one for you. This blanket was made for you. 
breathe in the safety and breathe out the joy it gives you. Take a deep breath and imagine that your blanket starts to grow. Slowly, all the people you love, all the people whose friendship you rejoice in, whose love you treasure, whose lives you support, and whose lives support yours, imagine they come under your blanket. They too feel the warmth, the security, the gentleness, the loving embrace of the blanket. They are right there with you, touching the softness. All of you together, safe and snuggled under your blanket. Imagine them beside you as you breathe in comfort and breathe out happiness. Take another deep breath. Once more, your blanket grows. Now it can cover your whole community, your congregation, your town. It keeps growing and it covers the whole of the world. All people, they're under your blanket more languages than you can count, more people than you can even fathom. A jumbled, joyful, chaotic mess, but safe, calm, held and covered under the blanket. Imagine the entirety of what we know there right there beside you as you breathe in wholeness and breathe out love. In the silence, feel the wholeness of connection. Feel the grace of honest welcome and feel the holiness of love. Earlier this week, I was driving in Queens and the man in front of me dropped something out of the window of his car. And I could tell as it fell to the ground that it was plastic. It was one of those rings like you find around um, ice cream pints or jars that keep the lids on for like safety. <clears throat> there was really no reason for him to do this, of course. Every corner has a trash can. Presumably he could have thrown it out at home or at work. But just out the window it went. And I know that he saw me see him because our eyes met in the side mirror, like sometimes happens, you know what I'm talking about? And he didn't react in any real discernible way. He didn't shrug or gesture apologetically, but, but he looked and he sort of looked like this and looked back and then just kept going. I don't have any idea if he felt like caught or guilty in that moment or felt nothing. A few days later, I was on a public bus, and for the first time in a long time, actually, it was filled with trash. 
paper towels and wrappers and just leavings from people who had ridden before me. As easy as it is to find a trash can in New York City, this bus still had garbage on it. People just leaving things on the ground and in public spaces. As I mentioned, this past weekend, there were a series of social justice events hosted by this congregation's Environmental Justice Committee and Racial Justice Committee. It took a lot of work. They deserve a lot of gratitude for what they did. They put on two evenings of interesting, engaging, informative, and challenging material, and I offer them our thanks. Last night, I was here for the panel conversation. Jeff Tittle of the Sierra Club moderated. Chief Mann of the Turtle Clan of the Ramapo Lenape was here, as was Amy Goldsmith from Clean Water Action and Steve Kihays from Habitat for Humanity in Patterson. They each spoke to their work and to the larger questions of environmental justice. And I actually want to start there with that phrase, environmental justice, because I want us to do a little defining of that term, some exposition around what it is and how it came to be, because there are actually two phrases relevant to our conversation this morning, and they are not the same. Environmental justice and climate justice, they're not the same. Environmental injustice is a term that particularly refers to a reality in American life that because of entrenched racism and prejudice and oppression, our government and our industries force communities of color to bear the brunt of our pollution and our environmental degradation. So environmental injustice gets at all the ways that communities of color experience the disproportionate effects of our Western treatment of the earth as disposable and here for our pleasure. Jeff Tittle of the Sierra Club last night said, we don't have environmental justice. What we have is environmental racism, sexism, and classism. So the term environmental injustice captures those intersecting issues and the way our historic oppressions play out through our treatment of the land and our neighbors. Climate injustice refers to the ways that around the world, the nations and areas most vulnerable to disruption by climate change, so from rising sea levels and extreme weather events, for example, it gets at how those most vulnerable are least responsible for causing the problem. You can think of tiny island nations around the globe that produce virtually no pollution or greenhouse gases, but which will be underwater before too long. Those areas most vulnerable tend not to be populated by Western white Christians. It's also the case that in our country, often the areas at risk from the results of climate change, flooding, and so on, and at risk for the lack of investment in the wake of disaster, are populated by people of color. You can think of Hurricane Katrina as a good example. So although environmental injustice and climate injustice are not the same, they do connect, right? <clears throat> All the way back in the biblical stories in Genesis, we can find the grounding for Western Christian outlooks on earth and the environment. There's a Bible story in which God gives humans dominion over the animals, right? God gives humans the land to work and use. The narrative of Western white humanity is that we were given by God a right to use up the land and the animals any way we see fit, 
And that continues for centuries, and it morphs a little bit right through Western expansion. I'm sure most of us learned of that period as the Age of Discovery, right? In that period, the idea persists that Western Christian folks have the right to conquer and make use of already inhabited lands. And that notion relied on various edicts and proclamations, most notably the Papal Bull of 1493, issued by Pope Alexander VI, that said that any land not inhabited by Christians could be discovered and claimed. Right? That's the doctrine of discovery. Right? That gets used as justification for all sorts of atrocities against the indigenous people of this land and other lands. The Bible stories, the doctrine of discovery, articulations even for slavery all work on the idea that, one, only humans matter, not the earth or its creatures, and that only white Christians are human, right? Those fundamental notions were used to subjugate indigenous people and people of color around the globe, and they were used to subjugate the earth itself through practices of farming and industry that didn't look at long-term sustainability but at immediate profit. When it comes to environmental injustice, these ideas all come together to create an intentional system in which the earth is exploited and disregarded, and the toxic and hazardous byproduct of that exploitation is dumped on people who continue to be marginalized and treated as less than human. With climate injustice, the ideas come together to create a willful system whereby certain lifestyles, ones that embody a Western notion of progress and industry, for example, are considered more valuable or more worthy, no matter the price the Earth or its other human inhabitants has to pay. Environmental injustice and climate injustice are very real things, though it's easy for some of us to pretend that they aren't. For those of us who live in parts of the world that are as yet mostly untouched, if you listened to Greta Thunberg or any of the other climate activists that have been raising righteous hell, you know that even if we are as yet untouched, we will in time very much have to contend with the realities of climate change and environmental abuses. And if you were at last night's panel, you would have heard an affirmation that even those of us who think we are untouched often really aren't. Chief Man was here from the Ramapo Lenape people, an indigenous group that is still not recognized as such by the federal government and whose historic land is in the Ringwood area. He told a story that ranged across many decades, really across centuries, and I'm not going to try to retell that story, but I encourage you to investigate it. What he told about, though, was a strip mine that became a coal mine that eventually became part of an industrial waste dumping ground. And the site is on the land of his people. Some decades ago, the Ford Company, which operated a factory nearby, wanted to buy up land that belonged to the Lenape people, and the Lenape would not be moved. Shortly after that, at the invitation of the mayor of Ringwood, the Ford Company began dumping toxic waste onto the grounds inhabited by the Lenape. Springs that used to run clear started to run orange. Many people suffered mysterious illnesses, got cancer, died premature deaths. Chief Man has, with others, been fighting to get the pollution remediated, and the legal struggle continues decades later, so many deaths later. 
The story that Chief Mann and Jeff Tittle of the Sierra Club, which has also been involved in the struggle, the story they told of the mines and the Ford dumping was a story of toxic waste used in retaliation, a story of government officials not only turning a blind eye but literally inviting pollution specifically onto land inhabited by indigenous people. It was a story of immoral, unethical, knowing violence against a minority group, not coincidentally a group considered for centuries by our government to be less than human. Chief Mann referred to it as genocide, and honestly I don't know how else you could describe it. The willful polluting of native lands and native water with toxic waste is part of this historic and ongoing picture of environmental injustice. And while the story is a particularly striking and horrifying one, it is part of a much larger story in which people of color are forced to absorb the pollution of the rest of the population regularly. Now, lest someone try to pull out the economics card and say it's not about color of skin, it's about economics, um, I want to show you a map. So I'm going to ask Bob to pull up our first map. Okay. Communities in poverty also tend to end up with greater environmental hazards. So in this first map, it's showing you a map. These yellow dots are environmental hazards in New Jersey. Okay. But in fact, the locations of factories, incinerators, power plants are strongly linked to race. So in New Jersey, this study showed, if you look at the center map, this one is showing you the, the mapping of those hazardous places onto economic, sort of um, above or below economic median. So in neighborhoods with below average family income, they have 1.4 times as many environmental hazards per square mile as neighborhoods with above average family income. So proximity to an environmental hazard is significantly higher if you live in poverty. But then the last map shows you in New Jersey, neighborhoods with above-average percent people of color have 4.1 times as many environmental hazards as neighborhoods with below-average percent people of color. Okay, So that means, in New Jersey at least, race is a better predictor of your proximity to an environmental hazard than poverty is. Steve Kihayes from Habitat for Humanity spent much of his career working in government regulation of remediation of hazardous waste. And he said that at one point, some scientists worked up scientific topographical methods for determining the safest location for plants, factories, and so on. The map offered the most sensible places in terms of runoff and so on to ensure that minimal damage would happen to land and to life. Those science-based methods were rejected he said, never adopted, because if that map were to be used, the waste-producing, polluting structures would have gone into white, wealthy neighborhoods. And there was no way that was going to happen. So they scrapped that science-based method. Places like Newark and Camden have had and continue to have many more hazardous factories, industries, than places like Ridgewood. They also have different regulations. Jeff Tittle pointed out that Camden drinking water tested anywhere else wouldn't be allowed to be drunk. And that although the standard for lead in water is five parts per billion everywhere else in Newark, it's 15 parts per billion. Meaning Newark is more loosely regulated than other parts of the state. And on top of that, you have to remember that those cities and towns most affected by environmental injustice often face other injustices 
that compound the effect. So Amy Goldsmith pointed out that the fight for justice in cases like this takes decades. So first of all, you're getting a compounded effect by year after year as you fight the legal battle, still having to deal with the ramifications of the waste and the pollution. But then you also have to consider some of this is an issue of economics and finance and investment into neighborhoods that are poor or predominantly non-white. So lead in the drinking water is made worse by malnutrition because certain nutrients can actually help block the effects, the negative effects of lead. But if you're not getting those nutrients, you're not getting that blocking effect. Those effects are again made worse if schools and homes are dealing with old and peeling paint because there isn't money to fix them. The intersecting issues of poverty and environmental injustice and oppression and lack of investment into communities create a complex problem that continues to impact people of color more than white folks and takes years upon years to make right. We here are not directly impacted, most of us, by environmental injustice, and many of us are not even touched by it that indirectly. But the reality is that the effects are often felt beyond the immediate communities in which the polluting or dumping is taking place. As Chief Mann pointed out, the water tables and the reservoirs and the travel of water through the land is connected, interconnected in ways that we don't think about when we turn on our tap. Meaning that even if you don't live in Ringwood where the dumping is taking place, where the springs run orange, the water supply downstream relies on the water from up north. Something similar helps explain climate injustice. And we can look at our next map. While northern western nations are not, in most cases, literally shipping their trash to the Maldives or capturing and releasing their air pollution over tiny nation states in the middle of the ocean, all things are connected. So chemicals that we have produced and used in our industries in America get dumped into water here, and that water travels out, and suddenly the entirety of the ocean is filled with PCBs, and tiny particles of plastic are in fish across the world. Our air and our atmosphere, all of it is connected. So when we don't regulate our greenhouse gases, the effect is felt in rising sea levels in the Pacific Ocean, where literal nations are disappearing. Climate injustice acts out on a global scale many of the same impulses that enable environmental injustice. While the Genesis story and the doctrine of discovery were used historically to justify the treatment of the earth, at the heart of this way of being is a selfishness, a detachment from the wholeness of life, a greed, and a ridiculous sense of individuality. Western culture is marked by a focus on progress at all costs. It's marked by the privileging of the individual. It's marked by a sense that we operate in a vacuum, that we can pull ourselves up, that our successes and failures are entirely our own. It's marked by a lack of understanding of the long history of humanity, of being, of existence itself, of reliance on the earth. We've forgotten how to be whole in ourselves and in our communities and in our world. We make decisions, at the very least our governments make decisions, based on either truly individual self-interest or collective self-interest that is dictated by profit rather than health. Last night, Jeff Tittle said that you can observe over the long history of our country 
this is a quote, deliberate patterns by the government and by industries that are at best negligent homicide and at worst deliberate. That's how Jeff Tittle put it. Amy Goldsmith said, policymaking is about profits and polluters, but clean air and clean water are a human right. She declared they are a basic human right. And that's the same message that that UN special report offered, that around the world people are being denied their human rights because of a lifestyle that some of the world is trying to maintain and because some of the world lacks the empathy and understanding needed to grasp that what doesn't immediately, directly affect them still matters. Without clean air and water, we know humans die. We need air to breathe, we need water to drink. And with rising sea levels that reclaim land into the ocean, literal habitats are being destroyed. With all that we do to pillage the earth, animals are going extinct at a hugely rapid rate, and the ecosystems upon which our existence rests are failing. None of this is news to you, but the idea that integrated ecosystems matter for humans, the idea that historic and native lands matter to their inhabitants, the idea that clean air and water are basic fundamental human rights, the idea that human rights should be enjoyed by all humans, regardless of religion and color and geography and wealth and education, those are not things that everyone in the world believes. And that's the crux of the problem. As long as we have people moving through their lives without consideration for the earth and its health, without consideration for other humans, we're going to be in trouble. As long as we have decision makers in office who hold oppressive and prejudiced views, who continue to see some humans as less than others, we are not going to make progress. Chief Mann said last night, we have too many people and not enough humans. This is like a really eloquent way of putting this. I said it last month and I'll say it again, we are reaching a breaking point. Either we can vision a different way of being and we can direct the change, or the impending climate disaster will change everything for us. This way of life that we have had, this way of competition and greed and wealth and individualism and disconnection, it has to end. The man driving the car in front of me was such a typical mundane example. He littered unnecessarily, probably just because he was feeling lazy. But in that moment, he made a real choice, right? He chose to disregard the earth, his neighbors, and our collective future because he was feeling lazy. We don't need laziness. We don't need hubris. We don't need a sense that our individual lives are all that matter. We need, as Chief Mann said, more people moving and leading from humility and wholeness. He echoed our seventh principle when he said that what affects one of us affects all of us. What affects the earth also affects all of us. That's the sense that we have to cultivate. That's the position we have to come to occupy one deeply grounded in our first and seventh principles, one that tells us that every life is important and deserves basic human rights, one that tells us that the earth is to be valued and cared for, not exploited, one that teaches us wholeness, not separatism. We need a radical change in how we understand ourselves and our place in this world. Because for too long, others 
specifically communities of color, have had to carry the weight of our selfishness. For too long, communities of color have had to suffer, and moving into the future, the clear picture is that non-white, non-Western, small communities, often of indigenous people, will face first the horrors of climate change. And that shouldn't be acceptable to any of us at all. The story of the Ramapo Lenape should make us cringe and squirm uncomfortably at the treatment they received and continue to receive from industry and government. The maps that show which nations will suffer should make us cringe and squirm uncomfortably, knowing that whole peoples will be underwater while we continue life as it is. These are hard truths to face about our history, our present, and our possible future. But there are things that can be done. Chief Mann asked those of us in attendance last night to stand with him and his people. Send letters regarding their legal battle to the judge making the ruling. There's an open time for communicating. He's told us he'll provide us the information we need to make that contact. Bear witness alongside him and his people to the wrongs done and speak out. Join the Sierra Club. Donate. Amy Goldsmith asked everyone to get involved in local, state, and federal issues that we feel passionate about and to use the power of our ballot wisely. She asked us to be part of considering what reduced waste would look like, personally and nationally, because that's a concrete and necessary way forward. And Chief Man asked us to cultivate again in ourselves that sense of wholeness and oneness with all people, that sense expressed so beautifully in our reading by Black Elk this morning. So this is my challenge to you. Be mindful of how you move through this world. The choices you make about your use and your waste, the choices you make about how to spend your money, and the choices you make about how to understand your place and the place of others in this wide and varied world that we share. Because our choices do matter, and we can do better. We extinguish the truth, the warmth of love, and the energy of action, being right in our hearts until we are together again. Aware that only through our changed living will we find a future for us all, know that you can be part of the solution. You can help answer the call of the future, the call of possibility, not for yourself, but for the wholeness of humankind. Go in peace.